Section three of Tom Jones. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Chris Turtle. Tom Jones by Henry Fielding. Book one, chapter seven. Containing such grave matter that the reader cannot laugh once through the whole chapter, unless peradventure he should laugh at the author. When Jenny appeared, Mr. Allworthy took her into his study, and spoke to her as follows. "'You know, child, it is in my power as a magistrate to punish you very rigorously for what you have done, and you will perhaps be the more apt to fear I should execute that power, because you have in a manner laid your sins at my door. But perhaps this is one reason which hath determined me to act in a milder manner with you.' For, as no private resentment should ever influence a magistrate, I will be so far from considering your having deposited the infant in my house as an aggravation of your offence, that I will suppose in your favour this to have proceeded from a natural affection to your child, since you might have some hopes to see it thus better provided for, than was in the power of yourself or its wicked father to provide for it. I should indeed have been highly offended with you, had you exposed the little wretch, in the manner of some inhuman mothers, who seem no less to have abandoned their humanity than to have parted with their chastity. It is the other part of your offence, therefore, upon which I intend to admonish you. I mean the violation of your chastity. A crime, however lightly it may be treated by debauched persons, very heinous in itself, and very dreadful in its consequences." The heinous nature of this offence must be sufficiently apparent to every Christian, inasmuch as it is committed in defiance of the laws of our religion, and of the express commands of him who founded that religion. And here its consequences may well be argued to be dreadful. For what can be more so than to incur the divine displeasure by the breach of the divine commands, and that in an instance against which the highest vengeance is specifically denounced? but these things, though too little, I am afraid, regarded, are so plain, that mankind, however they may want to be reminded, can never need information on this head. A hint, therefore, to awaken your sense of this matter shall suffice, for I would inspire you with repentance, and not drive you to desperation. There are other consequences, not indeed so dreadful or replete with horror as this, and yet such as, if attentively considered, must, one would think, deter all of your sex, at least, from the commission of this crime. For by it you are rendered infamous, and driven, like lepers of old, out of society, at least from the society of all but wicked and reprobate persons, for no others will associate with you. If you have fortunes, you are hereby rendered incapable of enjoying them. If you have none, you are disabled from acquiring any, nay, almost of procuring your sustenance, for no persons of character will receive you into their houses. Thus you are often driven by necessity itself into a state of shame and misery, which unavoidably ends in the destruction of both body and soul. Can any pleasure compensate these evils? Can any temptation have sophistry and delusion strong enough to persuade you to so simple a bargain? Or can any carnal appetite so overpower your reason, or so totally lay it asleep, as to prevent your flying with a fright and terror from a crime which carries such punishment always with it? How base and mean must that woman be! How void of that dignity of mind and decent pride, without which we are not worthy the name of human creatures, who can bear to level herself with the lowest animal, and to sacrifice all that is great and noble in her, all her heavenly part, to an appetite which she hath in common with the vilest branch of the creation! For no woman, sure, will plead the passion of love for an excuse. 
This would be to own herself the mere tool and bubble of the man. Love, however barbarously we may corrupt and pervert its meaning, as it is a laudable, is a rational passion, and can never be violent but when reciprocal, for though the scripture bids us love our enemies, it means not with that fervent love which we should naturally bear towards our friends, much less that we should sacrifice to them our lives, and what ought to be dearer to us, our innocence. Now in what light but that of an enemy can a reasonable woman regard the man who solicits her to entail on herself all the misery I have above described, and who would purchase to himself a short, trivial, contemptible pleasure so greatly at her expense? For, by the laws of custom, the whole shame, with all its dreadful consequences, falls entirely upon her. Can love, which always seeks the good of its object, attempt to betray a woman into a bargain where she is so greatly to be the loser? If such a corrupter, therefore, should have the impudence to pretend a real affection for her, ought not the woman to regard him not only as an enemy, but as the worst of all enemies, a false, designing, treacherous, pretended friend, who intends not only to debauch her body, but her understanding at the same time? Here, Jenny expressing great concern, Allworthy paused a moment, and then proceeded. I have talked thus to you, child, not to insult you for what is past and irrevocable, but to caution and strengthen you for the future. Nor should I have taken this trouble, but from some opinion of your good sense, notwithstanding the dreadful slip you have made, and from some hopes of your hearty repentance, which are founded on the openness and sincerity of your confession. If these do not deceive me, I will take care to convey you from this scene of your shame, where you shall, by being unknown, avoid the punishment which, as I have said, is allotted to your crime in this world and I hope by repentance you will avoid the much heavier sentence denounced against it in the other. Be a good girl the rest of your days, and want shall be no motive to your going astray, and believe me there is more pleasure, even in this world, in an innocent and virtuous life, than in one debauched and vicious. As to your child, let no thoughts concerning it molest you. I will provide for it in a better manner than you can ever hope. And now nothing remains but that you inform me who was the wicked man that seduced you, for my anger against him will be much greater than you have experienced on this occasion. Jenny now first lifted her eyes from the ground, and with a modest look and decent voice thus began. To know you, sir, and not love your goodness, would be an argument of total want of sense or goodness in any one. In me it would amount to the highest ingratitude not to feel in the most sensible manner the great degree of goodness you have been pleased to exert on this occasion. As to my concern for what is past, I know you will spare my blushes the repetition. My future conduct will much better declare my sentiments than any professions I can now make. I beg leave to assure you, sir, that I take your advice much kinder than your generous offer with which you concluded it. For, as you are pleased to say, sir, it is an instance of your opinion of my understanding. Here, her tears flowing apace, she stopped a few moments and then proceeded thus. Indeed, sir, your kindness overcomes me, but I will endeavour to deserve this good opinion, for if I have the understanding you are so kindly pleased to allow me, such advice cannot be thrown away upon me. I thank you, sir, heartily, for your intended kindness to my poor helpless child. He is innocent, and I hope will live to be grateful for all the favours you shall show him. But now, sir, I must on my knees entreat you not to persist in asking me to declare the father of my infant. I promise you faithfully you shall one day know but I am under the most solemn ties and engagements of honour, as well as the most religious vows and protestations, to conceal his name at this time. And I know you too well to think you would desire I should sacrifice either my honour or my religion. 
Mr. Allworthy, whom the least mention of these sacred words was sufficient to stagger, hesitated a moment before he replied, and then told her she had done wrong to enter into such engagements to a villain, but since she had, he could not insist on her breaking them. He said it was not from a motive of vain curiosity he had inquired, but in order to punish the fellow, at least he, that he might not ignorantly confer favours on the undeserving. As to these points, Jenny satisfied him by the most solemn assurances that the man was entirely out of his reach, and was neither subject to his power, nor in any probability of becoming an object of his goodness. The ingenuity of this behaviour had gained Jenny so much credit with this worthy man, that he easily believed what she told him, for as she had disdained to excuse herself by a lie, and had hazarded his father displeasure in her present situation, rather than she would forfeit her honour or integrity by betraying another, he had but little apprehension that she would be guilty of falsehood towards himself. He therefore dismissed her, with assurances that he would very soon remove her out of the reach of that obloquy she had incurred, concluding with some additional documents, in which he recommenced repentance, saying, Consider, child, there is one still to reconcile yourself to, whose favour is of much greater importance to you than mine. Chapter 8 A Dialogue Between Madames Bridget and Deborah, Containing More Amusement, But Less Instruction Than the Former When Mr. Allworthy had retired to his study with Jenny Jones, as hath been seen, Miss Bridget, with the good housekeeper, had betaken themselves to a post next adjoining to the said study, whence, through the conveyance of a keyhole, they sucked in at their ears the instructive lecture delivered by Mr. Allworthy, together with the answers of Jenny, and, indeed, every other particular which passed in the last chapter. This hole in her brother's study door was, indeed, as well known to Miss Bridget, and had been as frequently applied to by her as the famous hole in the wall was by Thisbe of old. This served to many good purposes, for by such means Miss Bridget became often acquainted with her brother's inclinations, without giving him the trouble of repeating them to her. It is true some inconveniences attended this intercourse, and she had sometimes reason to cry out with Thisbe and Shakespeare, O oh, wicked, wicked wall! For as Mr. Allworthy was a justice of peace, certain things occurred in examinations concerning bastards and such like, which are apt to give great offence to the chaste ears of virgins, especially when they approach the age of forty as was the case of Miss Bridget. However, she had on such occasions the advantage of concealing her blushes from the eyes of men, and de non apparentibus et non existentibus iadem est ratio. In English, when a woman is not seen to blush, she doth not blush at all. Both the good women kept strict silence during the whole scene between Mr. Allworthy and the girl, but as soon as it was ended, and that gentleman was out of hearing, Mrs. Deborah could not help exclaiming against the clemency of her master, and especially against his suffering her to conceal the father of the child, which she swore she would have out of her before the sunset. At these words, Miss Bridget discomposed her features with a smile, a thing very unusual to her. Not that I would have my reader imagine that this was one of those wanton smiles which Homer would have you conceive came from Venus when he calls her the laughter-loving goddess. Nor was it one of those smiles which Lady Seraphina shoots from the stage-box, and which Venus would quit her immortality to be able to equal. No, this was rather one of those smiles which might be supposed to have come from the dimpled cheeks of the august Tisiphone, or from one of the misses, her sisters. With such a smile, then, and with a voice sweet as the evening breeze of Boreas in the pleasant month of November, Miss Bridget gently reproved the curiosity of Mrs. Deborah, a vice with which it seems the latter was too much tainted, 
and which the former inveighed against with great bitterness, adding that among all her faults she thanked heaven her enemies could not accuse her of prying into the affairs of other people. She then proceeded to commend the honour and spirit with which Jenny had acted. She said she could not help agreeing with her brother, that there was some merit in the sincerity of her confession, and in her integrity to her lover, that she had always thought her a very good girl, and doubted not but she had been seduced by some rascal, who had been infinitely more to blame than herself, and very probably had prevailed with her by a promise of marriage or some other treacherous proceeding. This behaviour of Miss Bridget greatly surprised Mrs. Deborah, for this well-bred woman seldom opened her lips, either to her master or his sister, till she had first sounded their inclinations, with which her sentiments were always strictly consonant. Here, however, she thought she might have launched forth with safety, and the sagacious reader will not perhaps accuse her of want of sufficient forecast in so doing, but will rather admire with what wonderful celerity she tacked about when she found herself steering a wrong course. "'Nay, madam,' said this able woman, and truly great politician, "'I must own I cannot help admiring the girl's spirit as well as your ladyship, and as your ladyship says, if she was deceived by some wicked man, the poor wretch is to be pitied. And to be sure, as your ladyship says, the girl hath always appeared like a good honest plain girl, and not vain of her face forsooth, as some wanton hussies in the neighbourhood are. You say true, Deborah, said Miss Bridget. If the girl had been one of those vain trollops, of which we have too many in the parish, I should have condemned my brother for his lenity towards her. I saw two farmer's daughters at church the other day with bare necks. I protest they shocked me. If wenches will hang out lures for fellows, it is no matter what they suffer. I detest such creatures, and it would be much better for them and their faces had been seamed with the smallpox. But I must confess, I never saw any of this wanton behaviour in poor Jenny. Some artful villain, I am convinced, hath betrayed, nay, perhaps forced her, and I pity the poor wretch with all my heart. Mrs. Deborah approved all these sentiments and the dialogue concluded with a general and bitter invective against beauty, and with many compassionate considerations for all honest, plain girls, who are deluded by the wicked arts of deceitful men. CHAPTER nine, CONTAINING MATTERS WHICH WILL SURPRISE THE READER Jenny returned home well pleased with the reception she had met with from Mr. Allworthy, whose indulgence to her she industriously made public, partly, perhaps, as a sacrifice to her own pride, and partly from the more prudent motive of reconciling her neighbours to her, and silencing their clamours. But though this latter view, if she indeed had it, may appear reasonable enough, yet the event did not answer her expectation, for when she was convened before the justice, and it was universally apprehended that the house of correction would have been her fate, though some of the young women cried out it was good enough for her, and diverted themselves with the thoughts of her beating hemp in a silk gown, yet there were many others who began to pity her condition. But when it was known in what manner Mr. Allworthy had behaved, the tide turned against her. One said, "'I'll assure you, madam, hath good luck.' A second cried, "'See what it is to be a favourite.' A third, "'Aye, this comes of her learning.' Every person made some malicious comment or other on the occasion, and reflected on the partiality of the justice. The behaviour of these people may appear impolitic and ungrateful to the reader who considers the power and the benevolence of Mr. Allworthy, but as to his power, he never used it, and as to his benevolence, he exerted so much that he had thereby disobliged all his neighbours, for it is a secret well known to great men, that by conferring an obligation, they do not always procure a friend, 
but are certain of creating many enemies. Jenny was, however, by the care and goodness of Mr. Allworthy, soon removed out of the reach of reproach, when Malice, being no longer able to vent its rage on her, began to seek another object of its bitterness, and this was no less than Mr. Allworthy himself, for a whisper soon went abroad that he himself was the father of the foundling child. This supposition so well reconciled his conduct to the general opinion that it met with universal assent, and the outcry against his lenity soon began to take another turn, and was changed into an invective against his cruelty to the poor girl. Very grave and good women exclaimed against men who begot children and then disowned them. Nor were there wanting some who, after the departure of Jenny, insinuated that she was spirited away with a design too black to be mentioned, and who gave frequent hints that a legal inquiry ought to be made into the whole matter, and that some people should be forced to produce the girl. These calumnies might have probably produced ill consequences, at the least might have occasioned some trouble, to a person of a more doubtful and suspicious character than Mr. Allworthy was blessed with. But in his case they had no such effect, and, being heartily despised by him, they served only to afford an innocent amusement to the good gossips of the neighbourhood. But as we cannot possibly divine what complexion our reader may be of, and as it will be some time before he will hear any more of Jenny, we think proper to give him a very early intimation that Mr. Allworthy was, and will hereafter appear to be, absolutely innocent of any criminal intention whatever. He had committed no other than an error in politics, by tempering justice with mercy, and by refusing to gratify the good-natured disposition of the mob. Whenever this word occurs in our writings, it intends persons without virtue or sense in all stations, and many of the highest rank are often meant by it. With an object for their compassion to work on the person of poor Jenny, whom, in order to pity, they desired to have seen sacrifice to ruin and infamy by a shameful correction in Bridwell. So far from complying with this their inclination, by which all hopes of reformation would have been abolished, and even the gate shut against her, if her own inclinations should ever hereafter lead her to choose the road of virtue, Mr. Allworthy rather chose to encourage the girl to return thither by the only possible means. For too true, I am afraid, it is that many women have become abandoned, and have sunk to the last degree of vice, by being unable to retrieve the first slip. This will be, I am afraid, always the case, while they remain among their former acquaintance. It was therefore wisely done by Mr. Allworthy to remove Jenny to a place where she might enjoy the pleasure of reputation, after having tasted the ill consequences of losing it. To this place, therefore, wherever it was, we will wish her a good journey, and for the present take leave of her, and of the little foundling, her child, having matters of much higher importance to communicate to the reader. CHAPTER Ten. The Hospitality of Allworthy with a short sketch of the characters of two brothers, a doctor and a captain, who were entertained by that gentleman. Neither Mr. Allworthy's house nor his heart were shut against any part of mankind, but they were both more particularly open to men of merit. To say the truth, this was the only house in the kingdom where you were sure to gain a dinner by deserving it. Above all others, men of genius and learning shared the principal place in his favour, and in these he had much discernment. For though he had missed the advantage of a learned education, yet being blessed with vast natural abilities, he had so well profited by a vigorous though late application to letters, and by much conversation with men of eminence in this way, that he was himself a very competent judge in most kinds of literature. 
it is no wonder that in an age, when this kind of merit is so little in fashion, and so slenderly provided for, persons possessed of it should very eagerly flock to a place where they were sure of being received with great complacence. Indeed, where they might enjoy almost the same advantages of a liberal fortune, as if they were entitled to it in their own right. For Mr. Allworthy was not one of those generous persons, who are ready most bountifully to bestow meat, drink, and lodging on men of wit and learning, for which they expect no other return but entertainment, instruction, flattery, and subserviency. In a word, that such persons should be enrolled in the number of domestics, without wearing their master's clothes or receiving wages. On the contrary, every person in this house was perfect master of his own time, and as he might at his pleasure satisfy all his appetites within the restrictions only of law, virtue, and religion, so he might, if his health required, or his inclination prompted him to temperance, or even to abstinence, absent himself from any meals, or retire from them whenever he was so disposed, even without solicitation to the contrary. For, indeed, such solicitations from superiors always savour very strongly of commands. But all here were free from such impertinence, not only those whose company is in all other places esteemed a favour from their equality of fortune, but even those whose indigent circumstances make such an elemasonary abode convenient to them, and who are therefore less welcome to a great man's table, because they stand in need of it. Among others of this kind was Dr. Bliffel, a gentleman who had the misfortune of losing the advantage of great talents by the obstinacy of a father who would breed him to a profession he disliked. In obedience to this obstinacy, the doctor had in his youth been obliged to study physic, or rather to say he studied it, for in reality books of this kind were almost the only ones with which he was unacquainted, and unfortunately for him, the doctor was master of almost every other science but that by which he was to get his bread, the consequence of which was that the doctor at the age of forty had no bread to eat. Such a person as this was certain to find a welcome at Mr. Allworthy's table, to whom misfortunes were ever a recommendation when they were derived from the folly or villainy of others, but not of the unfortunate person himself. Besides this negative merit, the doctor had one positive recommendation. This was a great appearance of religion. Whether his religion was real, or consisted only in appearance, I shall not presume to say, as I am not possessed of any touchstone which could distinguish the true from the false. If this part of his character pleased Mr. Allworthy, it delighted Miss Bridget. She engaged him in many religious controversies, on which occasions she constantly expressed great satisfaction in the doctor's knowledge, and not much less in the compliments which he frequently bestowed on her own. To say the truth, she had read much English divinity, and had puzzled more than one of the neighbouring curates. Indeed, her conversation was so pure, her looks so sage, and her whole deportment so grave and solemn, that she seemed to deserve the name of saint equally with her namesake, or with any other female in the Roman calendar. As sympathies of all kinds are apt to beget love, so experience teaches us that none have a more direct tendency this way than those of a religious kind between persons of different sexes. The doctor found himself so agreeable to Miss Bridget, that he now began to lament an unfortunate accident which had happened to him about ten years before, namely his marriage with another woman, who was not only still alive, but what was worse, known to be so by Mr. Allworthy. This was a fatal bar to that happiness which he otherwise saw sufficient probability of obtaining with this young lady, for, as to criminal indulgences, he certainly never thought of them. This was owing either to his religion, as is most probable, or to the purity of his passion, which was fixed on those things which matrimony only, and not criminal correspondence, could put him in possession of, 
or could give him any title to. He had not long ruminated on these matters, before it occurred to his memory that he had a brother, who was under no such unhappy incapacity. This brother, he made no doubt, would succeed, for he discerned, as he thought, an inclination to marriage in the lady, and the reader, perhaps, when he hears the brother's qualifications, will not blame the confidence which he entertained of his success. This gentleman was about thirty-five years of age. He was of middle size, and what is called well-built. He had a scar on his forehead, which did not much injure his beauty, as it denoted his valour, for he was a half-pay officer. He had good teeth, and something affable when he pleased in his smile, though naturally his countenance, as well as his air and voice, had much of roughness in it. Yet he could at any time deposit this, and appear all gentleness and good humour. He was not ungenteel, nor entirely void of wit, and in his youth had abounded in sprightliness, which, though he had lately put on a more serious character, he could, when he pleased, resume. He had, as well as the doctor, an academic education, for his father had, with the same paternal authority we have mentioned before, decreed him for holy orders. But as the old gentleman died before he was ordained, he chose the church militant, and preferred the king's commission to the bishop's. He had purchased the post of lieutenant of dragoons, and afterwards came to be a captain, but having quarrelled with his colonel, was by his interest obliged to sell, from which time he had entirely rusticated himself, had betaken himself to studying the scriptures, and was not a little suspected of an inclination to Methodism. It seemed, therefore, not unlikely that such a person should succeed with a lady of so saint-like a disposition, and whose inclinations were no otherwise engaged than to the married state in general. But why the doctor, who certainly had no great friendship for his brother, should for his sake think of making so ill a return to the hospitality of Allworthy, is a matter not so easy to be accounted for. Is it that some natures delight in evil, as others are thought to delight in virtue? Or is there a pleasure in being accessory to a theft, when we cannot commit it ourselves? Or lastly, which experience seems to make probable, have we a satisfaction in aggrandizing our families, even though we have not the least love or respect for them? Whether any of these motives operated on the doctor we will not determine, but so the fact was. He sent for his brother, and easily found means to introduce him at Allworthy's, as a person who intended only a short visit to himself. The captain had not been in the house a week, before the doctor had reason to felicitate himself on his discernment. The captain was indeed as great a master of the art of love as Ovid was formerly. He had, besides, received proper hints from his brother, which he failed not to improve to the best advantage. End of section 3